In October 1978, a low-budget horror movie opened in American theaters and irrevocably changed horror cinema. This would go on to become the most successful independent film to that point and would launch the careers of those who worked on it both behind and in front of the camera. It would spawn not only countless imitators, but would serve as the archetype for an entire subgenre. The film's image of a white-masked killer expressionless and unrelenting, would burn itself into the American consciousness. This is John Carpenter's Halloween. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. And totally charted. Just Sure, sure. The only reason she babysits is to have Halloween. Halloween. The night he came home. Welcome to the first episode in our new series, Get Me Another Halloween. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. If you've listened to our show before, you'll know that we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and tried to replicate their success. This week, and in the weeks to follow, we'll be examining the wave of horror films, often featuring teenagers who find themselves the target of a knife-wielding killer that began with Halloween. Uh, now, Rob, I, both of us are are big fans of Halloween, and we're going to talk a little bit about what makes it so special and and unique, and then we'll get into the movies that kind of tried to follow it, and and that is uh, that is what we do. Um, I think the thing that makes Halloween so special is that it is literally perfect. Yes, I, I, I agree. <laughs> it is it is it is a pretty much a perfect film. It is, uh, and we're going to talk about why. Um, I want to just set the stage for it a little bit. Um, you know, Halloween began. With uh, producers Erwin Yablins and Mustafa Akkad reaching out to John Carpenter, who had directed a film called Assault on Precinct 13. And they wanted to do a movie about uh, you know, a killer who was targeting babysitters. Carpenter and his partner, Deborah Hill, began drafting a story entitled The Babysitter Murders, about a killer who stalked suburban streets. Uh, eventually, the decision was made to set the film on Halloween night and it was subsequently retitled Halloween. But I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about the horror landscape of the 1970s and some of the films that, that may have influenced Halloween. Uh, I think 
it's important to look, you look back at the success of George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 1968, which was independently produced in Western Pennsylvania and opened the doors for numerous independent horror films, often bearing distinctly regional stamps. Uh, films such as The Last House on the Left, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Black Christmas, and Alice Sweet Alice took advantage of relaxed restrictions on the depictions of violence and sexuality. Yeah, Rob, I just want to sort of set the landscape that Halloween comes into because there had been a wave of independent horror through the 70s, again, beginning with Night of the Living Dead. Um, but Halloween kind of takes it to the next level. Yeah, I'd say that uh, one of the films uh, that is often talked about uh, in relation to uh, Halloween coming before is Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Absolutely. Which is also just a fan fantastic movie in its own right. Um but I, for me, one of the big differences, um, it, that is a movie that also has a, a, a killer whose identity is unknown. Mm-hmm. And it feels definitely much more um, like it, it's closer to a thriller than Halloween is, is what I would yes. say. It's got some aspects of that giallo kind of, there's the murder mystery aspect of what's going on, uh, but it goes beyond what a typical thriller would and does cross that territory into horror. Um, it has the girls, the, yeah. in that case, the sorority girls, and you get a lot of naturalistic scenes of them hanging out and showing you who they are so that you care. Um, and again, it's not giving you a million pages of backstory. You're just getting to see them in the moment which is something that also is one of the hallmarks of Halloween that uh, it, it, that makes you care about the characters that in a lot of other movies, perhaps they are just stacked up as victims ready to go down. Definitely. Uh, I think one thing that, that, that Halloween really kind of did differently was to create a, 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 an antagonist, a killer who was an identifiable image. Nobody dresses up as Billy from Black Christmas for Halloween, because we don't really ever see him. We get his his POV, which is, you know, something that Halloween also uses is, is the killer's POV, which goes back to, um, you know, uh, uh, Peeping Tom, which is a, a terrific British film from the early 60s, came out around the time of Psycho. Uh, those are kind of two of the big, you know, sort of significant steps along the way. Um, but I think Halloween... Well, let me put it this way. I in I maintain that Halloween is to independent horror what Star Wars was to mainstream filmmaking. Uh, just as Star Wars couldn't have happened without the Hollywood new wave that preceded it, Halloween couldn't have happened without those independent horror movies of the 70s. But both films were watersheds that ultimately marked the beginning of new eras. Uh, I think... Honestly, for me, and I obviously rewatched Halloween and, frankly, Star Wars quite recently because we did the Get Me Another Star Wars series, I, I watched both films. And while they come out of the 70s, you can almost feel the 80s, the cinema of the 80s being born in those movies. Absolutely. Um, and as far as the Michael Myers, I agree with your point that he gets elevated into kind of this mythic strat- stature, even in the first film when he's not... Yeah very supernatural oriented in in what he does right it's still a very grand level movie but it just feels mythic and feels more universal more larger than life yes absolutely yeah on your other point about the late 70s and coming out of the new hollywood and that film school era what what i find extremely interesting is if as long as you're looking at star wars 
starting a trend in the late 70s and Halloween doing the same thing. Uh, these are film school graduates. Um, yep. Obviously, they both had been working for a bit here, right? This is not their first, uh, this is not Carpenter's first rodeo. No. By far, he'd ha- he'd done what, Dark Star and then Assault on Precinct Assault 13 on outside Precinct 13. of. And, and neither was Star Wars George Lucas's. Yeah, yeah. But um, what I find interesting is after all of the rule breaking of late 60s and, the, you know, the new Hollywood and the 70s era, uh, another thing is that these are, you know, Carpenter and to compare him to Lucas just in this sense, they are both classicists in how they operate with their directing styles. I mean, these guys are using extremely classical rules for framing uh, mm-hmm. and, and and editing how these shots go together. Now, they're innovating as well, but these are not guys who are going out there saying, let's break all the rules, baby. They are right. breaking very, very carefully selected rules. But most of what they do is at a high level of technical craftsmanship, which in the case of what follows Halloween is not always what we will see with its imitators. Right. Um, yeah, no, it's, it, and it's interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that Halloween uses that, that I think just visually sets it apart from a lot of the films that we'll talk about as the series goes on is its use of a, a two, three, five aspect ratio, a, a cinemascope aspect ratio where many of the, many of the films that followed were, were one, eight, five uh, flat aspect ratio. And the way Carpenter and cinematographer Dean Cundy make use of that frame and every piece of that frame is just, is just pure genius. Um, yeah, it's it's really it's really amazing. Yeah, one of the things that I uh, speaking of that frame, there's just a, a sequence somewhat early on, mm. and I'm just going to talk about a single cut. All right, between sure. two shots, just to illustrate, I think what you will see in Halloween that you, uh, frankly, you don't see in many movies, regardless of genre. Um, so when we first see Lori uh, in this one shot, she's walking up and back into frame, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got the line of houses on the street. She's This is early on. She she has not been scared yet, right? Right. So this is very early on. Uh, the line of houses and the trees that close, uh, they're kind of right back left in a diagonal. Okay. So it's a, a diagonal cutting across from corner to corner on frame. And she's walking along it on the sidewalk. Um, and she's going back. The next shot, you're on a different street. Um, the first one was tree-lined. This one doesn't have as many trees on that, but the diagonal uh, is in the same exact space. Mm-hmm. But now, whereas she went up and back away, you know, in into frame, away from right. camera on the first one, now she starts, she is in that back corner where she disappeared, coming back around to now come walk toward camera along the same diagonal line that existed in the prior shot. Um, it reminded me a lot of, of another movie that I love. Obviously, this is far, far later, but uh, it reminded me of how Julie Taymor uses geography uh, for her mise en scène in Titus, yeah. and how how those how the di- uh, dynamic action within those shots then cuts into the next one. Oh, you get things like that in Halloween that you really have to um, stop enjoying the movie. And start like you, you cannot be swept up in the movie or you'll, you know, which I most of the time am, but I absolutely, yeah, for your sake, listeners, I said, I'm not going to like Halloween this time. I'm going to (laughs) watch it for all of these little bits. 
Um, I should, for anybody who, I should give a, a, a brief synopsis of Halloween. Although, again, I, I always forget to put spoiler warnings at the top. Uh, there, this will be a, a, a show that talks about spoilers for all of our movies, so just know that. And frankly, if you haven't seen Halloween, why are you listening to us? Go watch Halloween, for goodness sake. Uh, but it is it is a story set in the fictional town of Haddonfield, Illinois, revolving around Michael Myers, who, when he was six years old, stabbed his sister to death on Halloween night. He subsequently is sent to a mental institution until he escapes 15 years later. Pursued by his psychiatrist, who believes Michael to be pure evil, he returns to his hometown to kill once again. It's there that he encounters Laurie Strode and her friends, who are babysitting for local kids on what turn out to be a fateful Halloween night. Uh, the film is directed by John Carpenter, produced by Deborah Hill, and written by Carpenter and Hill. It stars Donald Pleasance, Jamie Lee Curtis, PJ Souls, Nancy Loomis, Charles Cyphers, and Nick Castle. Um, just a couple of, of casting things I wanted to talk about. Uh, obviously, Jamie Lee Curtis is iconic in the role of... Uh, of Laurie Strode, and she has played that again several times, but they originally approached Anne Larkhard, uh, who was on Battlestar Galactica. She played Sheba on Battlestar Galactica at the time, and and she uh, was not available. And for Loomis, um, they approached both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee to play Loomis uh, before getting Donald Pleasance. I want to say that Donald Pleasance is one of my favorite character actors from this era, and he elevates every film he's in. Um, you know, from his first on screen, he was the first on screen Ernst Stavro Blofeld in the James Bond movie, Only Twice, and he is my the murderer in my favorite episode of Columbo, and he's just one of those just all time great character actors. Um, yeah, it's. Again, like Star Wars, I think Halloween's a very simple story. Uh, in short, you know, it's an insane killer escapes and to, returns to his hometown to kill. And what elevates it is the way that story is told. In lesser hands, Halloween wouldn't have been the watershed that it was, but Carpenter's direction is so expert, it's still being imitated today. And even in some of the, you know, obviously when you talk about Carpenter, the music is especially in oh, Halloween, yeah. a huge one. And we have a we have a film coming up later that is very clearly just aping the music yes. from Halloween. But one of the big differences, besides just a, you know, it's so creepy and atmospheric. There had been creepy and atmospheric things before, but in Halloween, this feels much more like the precursor to a lot of the atmospheric kind of non-melodic uh, scores that you will get in a lot of horror movies in the modern era. Definitely. This obviously isn't that. Uh, but the sound editing and mixing in this thing is at a whole different level as well. Yeah. Um, so where those where the score stings come in, um, like at the beginning, right, the counterpoint of sound with the picture, in that opening Steadicam sequence, which is mm-hmm. one of the all-timers. Uh, oh, it's, it's, mean, um, it is a masterpiece. Every now and again, someone wants to outdo Touch of Evil, and it works, baby. Uh, <laughs> most, most of the time, it is abysmal. But uh, here, it produced one of the best sequences in film oh, history. It, it's but, amazing. Uh, the music sting when the bedroom light goes out, as young yep. my you know. It, yep. It reminds me in some ways of, um, uh, although he does it in a much more gonzo way, the way Raimi does sound effects 
uh, that that coincide with like panning across like root, you know, ceiling beams in the cabin. Sure. In, uh, Evil Dead movies, things like or Evil Dead Two, I think specifically on that one. But um, here it's not quite doing uh, foley work that shouldn't exist, but it is using the score in ways that. Uh, sometimes are working with picture in, in the mm-hmm. instance I just described. Sometimes they're a counterpoint where they're not doing the same thing, which is important to keep the audience on their toes. Absolutely. Yeah, that whole that whole opening sequence is just a masterpiece in and of itself. Uh, a bit of trivia, by the way, uh, it is writer producer Deborah Hill's hands picking up the knife uh, the the and and killing Judith Myers. Just for for the record. Um, you know, and, and it also lends, there's a theme of voyeurism throughout this movie that starts with that, that opening sequence, which we all get through through the killer's POV. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, there's certainly a sexual aspect to Michael Myers' crimes. Like, it's no coincidence that he kills his sister when she's in her underwear. But it's not as simple as like, you know, like sort of like you know, hey, uh, you know, the knife has got to be his penis kind of thing. You know, it's not it's not as simple as that. It's more vague. And as such, it allows the audience to have their own interpretations of, uh, of, of what is going on. I think one of the most important things about this movie is they don't really assign motive. It's not... And, and I think subsequent Halloween sequels, which we will talk about at another time, always kind of the, the trap is trying to explain Michael Myers. And whether you're explaining them as the, the product of a, uh, you know, druidic cult or, you know, uh, you know, anything else, you know, just a, a bad childhood, it's, 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 it's one of those things that I think he is best left unknowable. Not simply unknown, but unknowable. Yeah, I mean, this one has the, the school lesson where Laurie is there, and that lesson is on fate. Yes, and how uh, you cannot sometimes outrun your fate. I mean, in this in this movie, in Halloween, forgetting all others, right? We're just talking about this one. Yes, Michael becomes obsessed with Lori only by chance. Yes, she happened to be asked by her dad to drop the keys off at the old Myers house so that someone else could view it, and yeah. uh, that just happened to be at the moment when Michael had made it back to the home and was inside. He sees her, and that's in in the text of the first film. That is what it is. That Absolutely. is what people experienced at that time. It makes it again to not have specific motive, even though you do have um, some history of Michael as a person. It does elevate it into this mythic stature, uh, and also anyone can be a victim. Lori yes. never has sex. Never even comes close to it. And she is the one he is most obsessed with. There are plenty of other people he kills. That truck driver had nothing to do with sex. Um, he just needed to, to, to move on along. Yeah. And they've said uh, in, in many interviews that it was never their intention that sex equal death in this first Halloween. I really think they're just sex is a part of teenagers lives, whether we want to admit it or not. And so to not show that would feel weird and unreal. I agree. And they do show it. And that, and they happen to also be at this spot where they're going to die because there's an insane maniac on the loose. 
Yeah, I think I think a lot of later movies lean harder into the idea that death is the consequence to sexual activity, but I don't see it to this to that to, really. I don't see it in this original in the original Halloween. Um, no one in this movie is doing anything that warrants death as a punishment. And I, I would point out that even Laurie is a horny teen in some sense. She clearly has longing. Uh, but unlike her peers, has not had the opportunity to act on it. And she even comments that guys think she's too smart. Um, but, you know, she has that bit where she's walking down the street and she's like, you know, I think, you know, she's, I won't sing it because I'll, 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 our, our listeners, whatever listeners we have, would run, running from the hills. But she's like, she's singing a song about longing. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, she's not just some chaste, uh, you know, image. She, you know, it's just, Hey, different people at different times in their lives. What I think sets Lori apart from the other girls more than anything else is her sense of responsibility. Once things really start to go down in like the last 20 minutes of the movie, Lori is as concerned with protecting the kids as she is herself. And there's a scene where she's reading a, a King Arthur book to Tommy Doyle early in the night. And, and the line that she reads is, let no one pass this way without a fight. Well, that's Lori. That is Lori and Michael. She is She's absolutely the guardian of those kids. If anybody's really delinquent, I'll say this. If anybody's delinquent, it's the parents in the town. With the exception of Annie's dad, who's also the sheriff, those parents are largely absent. They're all off at 70s key parties and are leaving their kids home alone to be killed. Yeah, it's uh, it's Halloween, Chris. Everyone's entitled to a good scare uh, <laughs> when they get home. Uh, the other thing that sets Lori apart, and I, I, I won't need to dwell into this uh, too long because a lot has already been said on this, but uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, while I like everyone in this, like I'm a, I'm a big PJ Souls fan. I think she, it's it's like a great role. Um, I'm a big Nancy Loomis fan. I love her in this movie. Yeah, no, she is fantastic. Uh, but I think it's hard to imagine Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasant's do such a job in this movie. Not only can I not imagine anyone else in that role, I'm hard pressed to believe this movie would have worked without them. Uh, I have, look, I'll never know, right? You'll yeah. never know. But, but, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, there is that perfect combination of sweetness and vulnerability combined mm -hmm. with the strength and you really need both. And the strength has to come from why she is kind and why she is vulnerable or, yeah. you, or it's not viable. And cause you'll yeah. see a lot of people in that kind of role, they'll play meek and scared. And then all of a sudden go Terminator or something that right. she does not do that here. Um, no. And even, in, even in the later movies down the line, it's coming from a, the, the strength is coming from a different place than you often see, or at least that's how it feels to me. And Pleasance, oh, I agree. Pleasance, man, Doctor Loomis. Oh, okay. which I could, I could write, I could write a whole book on Loomis. Um, the, <laughs> his, his performance, the thing that I think is so affecting for me, is that he is clearly an idealist, yeah, and such a caring man who wanted to help people, and yes. to see someone like that be so broken and cynical and ready to murder a mm -hmm. former patient. Um, it's far different from a Von Helsing situation. Yes. Um, 
and you get you get that kind i mean you get the sadness as well he is resolute he is scared uh yeah. he, he there's no doubt in his mind that he needs to kill michael but i think there is still that sadness and that guilt because while he does say he was pure evil you i don't know and again this is what i read into the film uh, mm-hmm. but for me dr loomis uh i don't know that he doesn't doesn't think every now and again well what what did i do wrong yeah. what could i have done to stop this from happening Oh yeah, and there's that great speech he gives to Sheriff Brackett in the house when he's talking about trying to reach him. You know, it's and, and it you could really feel it in there. <laughs> you must think me a very sinister doctor. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I do have a permit. Seems to me you're just plain scared. Yes, yeah, I, I am. Uh, I met him. Fifteen years ago, I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. What do we do? He's been here once tonight. I think he'll come back. I'm going to wait for him. I still think I should notify the radio and television. If you do that, they'll see him on every street corner. They'll look for him in every house. Just tell your men to keep their mouth shut and their eyes open. I'll check back in an hour. Obviously, there's several murders in Halloween. Like, it is a film where some people get killed. Uh, and there's even a little bit of blood. But I, I want to add, the film doesn't really focus on that. It doesn't focus on the blood and the guts. And instead, it focuses on tension and suspense. I feel like this film, I always make the comparison that this film is like a crossbow. It just slowly, you know, click, click, click. It's turning up the tension. And then when you get to that last half hour, and it just lets it fly. It is, it is still, I mean, it is still, the last 20 minutes or so are still some of the best edited material, I think, in any film ever. Like, it is just, you know, once Laurie goes over to the Wallace house, all that, that, that tension is, that has just been building reaches a crescendo, and you have that shot. And it's one of the more famous shots of the movie at the top of the stairs where Michael's face appears in the hall behind Laurie. And it's amazing. And from there, it just that from that point, the film absolutely does not stop. You have that scene in the kitchen where both Laurie and Michael are struggling to open doors and who's going to open theirs first. And it's Michael. And, and still like, you know, Laurie's run across the street where Michael is steadily pursuing her. Uh, you know, it's funny. The thing about Michael Myers' movements in this movie is not that he's slow. It's that his move, his pace does not change. So he moves in his own time. There's later films, even some of the later Halloween films, he becomes kind of this slow robot moving thing. And and I don't think it's as effective. Here, he, he's, a, he's just 
he's set and and he's not going to speed up he's not going to slow down but that scene where she runs across the street and she's banging on the on the how you know to for the kid to, to let her in because the door is locked to this day every time i watch it i think he's gonna get her like it 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 absolutely has that same effect on me every time. Um, yeah, it's 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 incredible. Yeah, one of my favorite things in that in that sequence in the film, uh, and one of the most terrifying, and I think probably the absolute realest thing in this film, is when Laurie is trying to get help, mm-hmm. and she there is a house with lights on. And she goes yes. up to the door and is screaming for help and banging on the door and the lights just go out. Yeah. Um, and yes. I'm, uh, that is just, that is to me far more terrifying than yes. a lot of times films bend over backwards to go why you can't get help. It's because, oh, there's, you, you can't reach anybody. There is no help around. Uh, far more terrifying, especially in the uh, suburban, urban context yes. of, there's plenty of people around to help. They just won't do it. Let me say this. Let me say this about that. One of the aspects that also sets Halloween apart from the movies that came before it is that it's where horror comes home. Haddonfield could be any suburban town in America. The characters don't have to go off to a remote Gothic castle or a, or a remote rural area to find themselves in danger. Michael Myers could be in any town on any street. And the suburban setting is absolutely key to this movie because the houses aren't that close and people are minding their own business, which is another way of saying they ignore stuff they don't want to deal with. Um, honestly, what you're, that scene that you're talking about where she, the lights, she's, she's banging on the door on the porch, you know, crying for help and the lights just go out, I think is the most evil act in the film not committed by Michael Myers. It's cold. It is just cold and i think it's one of those things where the suburban setting was so key to to this to the very dna of this movie yeah and it's the uh you're not safe where you think you are um yeah yeah and 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 key with that i think is you know the first half of this movie is is you have a lot of daylight scenes but really about halfway through ish uh you are pretty much solidly at night uh, then leading yeah. into obviously the, the final act, which is uh, just insane, insanely tense. Oh, but yeah. even bef- before that time to have someone who can shoot frames that are majority black, right? Majority shadow working mm-hmm. with extremely little light, but giving you just enough of what you, what they want you to see that, you know what's going on, but you have that tension. Um, it, it's just the perfect amount of what you can and can't see. Um, yeah. uh, other people do versions of it to varying degrees of effect, but Halloween, it's an every, every night shot, um, mm-hmm. you know, where, where there is the darkness, like Annie out in the, uh, oh my gosh, when she's out in the, uh, doing the laundry. Oh, in the garage. Yeah. With the laundry room. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and just you can't see what's outside, and yeah. it is, uh, it's, but you feel like you should be able to, but you yes. know you can't. Like it, like I have Annie's perspective of, oh, you really, I don't think you could see what's out there. Uh, there's uh, something later on in another one of the films where 
a character's not supposed to be able to see out of a window. And I was left really scratching my head going, right. You should like, given what the frame looked like the character should be able to, we'll get back to that later. But here, every time a character shouldn't be able to see something, I believe it. Yeah. Uh, one other point, a couple other points I want to I want to bring up regarding Holland. One is the striking image of Michael Myers, the white mask, expressionless. It's not only incredibly frightening, but it's also something that could be and has obviously been a Halloween costume many times. And so it's honestly, I think with with Michael Myers and, or, or the shape as he is credited in in the credits of this movie. They create a horror image which is instantly recognizable and iconic, perhaps more than any horror film back to the era of the classic Universal Monsters. Um, And another thought on that, not every killer in the films that we're going to explore in the weeks to come will wear a mask. Uh, Some will, and usually when they do, it is to hide their identity. Not so with Michael Myers. This is not a whodunit. Um... It's it, it. There's no like reveal of who the killer is. Some of the movies we'll we'll talk about do have a whodunit quality. Some will not, and 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 it depend. It's interesting to see which ones use that tactic and which ones don't. But to the mask is not to conceal his identity. It is part of his identity, and to some degree, it's the mask that separates Michael Myers from the shape. Um, you know, it's it, could he kill without the mask? Does Lori save herself by those few precious seconds at the end by removing his mask for a moment? Um, you know, is that is it something in that? Like when in that opening scene, it's he doesn't kill until after he's put on the clown mask. Even Child Michael, um, you know, does that, and and it's just I, I think it's such an interesting. There's something so interesting about it. To that point, uh, and look, this is just a fun little thing. You can think of it what you will. It's always stuck with me that when uh, Dr. Loomis finds that truck driver where Michael had switched, right, clothes yep. so that he wasn't in his, uh, you know, his garb, that truck driver, Michael stole the jumpsuit, the work yep. jumpsuit. That's what he is in through the rest of the movie. He then off camera gets the the Michael Myers mask in the, in the store. Uh, but this is part of the, like, Michael in his clothes. Michael takes the time to dress yeah. the truck driver in his old stuff, in Michael Myers' old stuff. Yeah. Now, there's he hit him in the bushes. There's absolutely no reason like, oh, I'm doing this so that people don't notice a naked body or think that it's me. Right. Like, no one's going to... It is not to that purpose. Um, now, in reality, maybe it was to achieve a certain uh, MPAA rating. But in my sure. mind... I like to connect it as you were saying, Chris, is that this is a moment when he's almost giving Michael Myers away. That identity is now a truck driver and the shape has been born. Yeah, because it's it's not the MPA thing, because you could have you could have shot that in a way that you could imply that the the truck driver's name is, you know, the body is naked without, you know, without showing his 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 bits. You know, you you don't need you're not going over an X rating for for the naked for the truck driver. Um, Yeah, I think there is something in his in his changing um you know we we talked about that earlier and i just want to it's there's there's something about just the unknowable quality of michael myers he's he's in a sense he isn't even michael myers he's the shape and perhaps he really is the boogeyman and i think the power of that unknowability in the original film as you say laurie becomes 
uh, you know, Michael's sort of object of Michael's obsession by chance. It's just because she was dropping the keys off. Um, you know, later films would try to retcon that, but um, I think the the reason that's so pow- it's so powerful that there's no explanation for Michael, what Michael did to his sister, is simply just that whether it came from within or without, evil took root in a six-year-old boy. And if it can do that, it can take hold anywhere, in any town and on any street, in anybody. And I think there is there is some of the power of the of the mythic figure they create with Michael Myers or the shape um, that later films, some later films will 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 kind of maybe get close to other films will very much not get close to. Uh, and we'll see where they go. Um, before we wrap up on Halloween, I just want to mention that after it was completed, producer Erwin Yoblins approached several major studios about distributing the film and they all passed which led Yobbins and his partner, Joseph Wolf to distribute the films, the, the film themselves. And it became the highest grossing independent film to that point, as we mentioned before. And many of the studios who turned down Halloween would soon be looking for their own slasher films. How would they do that, Chris? What would they say? <laughs> <laughs> Get me another Halloween. So we move on from the original film to, to uh, to some of the films that followed, because that's what we do here. Uh, one of the first, which tried to capture the vibe of Halloween, also centered around a babysitter in a suburban house. Released in the fall of 1979, this is When a Stranger Calls. On a warm September evening, Dr. Monakis? Jill Johnson was babysitting for the two young children of a wealthy doctor. Okay, bye. They told her where they would be and when they would be home. They told her everything she had to know, except what to do when a stranger calls. Hello? Have you checked the children? What? Hello, could you get me the police? Well, there's really nothing you can do about it down here. Uh, Have you checked the children? He's watching me through the windows. Well, if he calls again, we can try to trace it. Why haven't you checked the children? Please, can't you help me? I'm all alone here. What do you want? Your blood. Leave me alone! Jill, this is Sergeant Sacker. We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. Jill, just get out of that house. And the terror just begins when a stranger calls. Written by Steve Fecke and Fred Walden and directed by Walden, When when a Stranger Calls is based on the folktale, The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs, an urban legend that also provided inspiration for Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Uh, Fred Walden, I will mention, would eventually go on to direct a movie we'll talk about near the end of this series, April Fool's Day, which I know that Rob is a big fan of and I am a big fan of. Uh, when a Stranger Calls stars Carol Kane, Charles Durning, Tony Beckley, and Colleen Dewhurst. Now, Rob, I had never seen When a Stranger Calls, but I'd certainly heard of it. Um, and it, it basically, the, the premise, it, the first 25 minutes feature Carol Kane as a teenage babysitter named Jill, 
who is repeatedly called by a stranger who asks her to check the children. The calls continue and the tension ratches up. Eventually she calls the police and they're able to trace the call and he tells her it's coming from inside the house. She races to the door just as the police arrive and discover that the man upstairs killed the two children hours ago. And the first 20 minutes of this movie are incredible. The tension, I think Carol Kane gives a fantastic performance. Everything in the first 20 minutes of this movie is fantastic. After the first 20 minutes, the movie changes entirely (laughs) Uh, to a degree I've never seen in a movie before. I've never seen a movie as bifurcated as When a Stranger Calls. Yeah. And if it was if it was bifurcated, that'd be great. But this is like 20 minutes versus 100 and, uh, an hour 10. Right. Yeah. It's not split and in I'm, half. It's the first 20 minutes and then the remaining hour and 15 minutes. Uh, what, what happens is after the first sequence, we jump ahead seven years and the killer, Kurt Duncan, escapes from a mental institution. Uh, Dr. Mandrakis, the father of the two murdered children, hires John Clifford a former detective who works on the case played by Charles Durning to hunt down the escaped killer. And what follows is a completely by the numbers, unengaging detective story. Uh, Like we spend the next hour turning Kurt Duncan into one of the least interesting or threatening murderers in cinematic history. I mean, the first thing we see him do is fail to pick up Colleen Dewhurst at a bar and then get the shit beaten out of it. Yeah. I, this is such a, I'm just not sure what the thought process was because that the horror movie part of this is so excellent. And then it feels like it goes into a like detective thriller that has to fit as a television movie on ABC or something. Um, Yeah. Like as far as like, can't, can't be too tense. We got to sell some dial soap in between here. Um, (laughs) But uh, it, it is okay. Here's a difference, right? So, if you want to say Charles Durning is your Donald Pleasance, right? That the you know John Clifford, former detective, right. now private uh, private investigator, he's, he's your, your Loomis character, kind of. He he was there at the yeah. beginning of the uh, you know the origin of your crazy killer. A uh, little different, but you know he was there, uh, and this guy's been on his mind ever since, and then. Dr. Mandrakis. Everybody gets it wrong the first time, Michael. Mandrakis. Mandrakis. Um, So he hires him, right? So you've got the detective, has the prior knowledge, and now is going to hunt him down, even to expressly kind of kill him, right? Yeah. Which Loomis doesn't say it, but, you know, he does eventually, but not, he doesn't start out saying it. Uh, John Clifford is pretty early on. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go just totally kill this dude. Yeah. Uh, At one point he's trying to use what a lock, um, not a lock pick. He called it, it's something else, but it's essentially a giant metal spike. He's like, yes. Sneaking into a homeless uh, encampment. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, It's a homeless shelter shelter. later. Yeah. It's a, yeah. And he's going and he's just going to like, you know, give the guy instant lobotomy. But the difference is that when Dr. Loomis is doing his searching, even in the daytime scenes, like when he you see the truck and he's going around the corner, you're like, well, what's around that corner? Um, you're walking through the cemetery with another guy, the cem- you know, the, the caretaker. Mm-hmm. It's during the day. But you still are like, there are a lot of trees in the world. Like, it, you feel he's not safe. 
Uh, right. Pretty much the entire time John Clifford is doing the shoe leather of his investigation, you 100% know nothing is going to happen. The movie tells yes. you. There is absolutely, positively no danger here. Relax. And that's, no. for me at least, kind of a problem. Well, and, and because they, they, you know, it's like, well, you know, the film basically asked the question, what if we turned Michael Myers into a pathetic schlub? Like, there's nothing frightening about Kurt Duncan. You know, he's just, you know, it's, it's anyway, and they, he's, you know, Charles Durning spends the next hour pursuing this guy. And then in the last act, the last 20 minutes or so, Carol Kane's character reappears. Now, seven years later, she's a wife and a mother. And as she's preparing to go out to dinner with her husband, uh, she's preparing to go out to dinner with her husband and leave the two young children with a sitter. At the restaurant, she gets a call asking, have you checked the children? And they race home to find the children safe. But that night, Duncan enters the house, leading to a final confrontation. Um, you know, and and it's... Honestly, we get to the end. I thought for a moment that Carol Kane was going to kick this guy's ass, which honestly I would have loved to have seen. But uh, no, there's a little too much Dirty Harry, a little too much Death Wish in this movie. Where <laughs> yeah, you, you you know, Doctor Loomis is obviously out to kill, and he's he thinks that Michael is purely evil and can't be helped, and he's not happy that the mental institution let him away. But here, it's very much like. The system's broken. They can't yeah. keep killers inside. There's very much a little bit more of that feel in this one. Which might make more sense if he had been let out. Like if, yes. if they had let him out because they were saying, oh, he's cured. Then I could see sort of the Dirty Harry Death Wish angle. But he escaped. I mean, it's, 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 it's. <sighs> anyway, I, I, you know, it's funny because I, I'm, the whole time I'm watching this film, I'm thinking to myself. Wow, those first 20 minutes really were incredible. This should have just been a short film unto itself. And sure enough, it was. Two years earlier, in 1977, a year before Halloween, the same creative team made a short film called The Sitter, which was basically the first 20 minutes. And it's available on YouTube. We watched it. Uh, the success of The Sitter led Walton, in fact, to try and turn it into a feature-length film, and that's where the problems come. Uh, I, I, I like The Sitter. I didn't think, I thought the, the first 20 minutes of When a Stranger Calls was the better version. Uh, part A lot of it because Carol Kane is just fantastic in what is effectively a one-woman show in the, in the opening. You know, she carries that 20 minutes completely. And I didn't necessarily think that the actress they had for the short version was the caliber of Carol Kane. But it, it was good. Like, and it's, the script was basically completely the same. Yeah, and I think the, uh, the 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 use of shadows in the the feature version is a little nicer. Yeah, uh, but that that's to be expected. You probably you just have better lights and probably you better have more money. Stock, you have better lights. Sure. Yeah, you're not shooting on short ends. Um, but the one thing I liked about the short, the better, uh, or just mm. an aspect of the short that is not really in the feature version, which I missed, and I I have a suspicion I know why they took it out is you do get uh, at least one point in that short where you get static shots yes. of everywhere that the, the, the sitter is not. Yes. And you're just like, there's nothing there and you're holding on them. And I imagine, and I just really like it. I like it when it's- I did too. I noticed that too. It's in my notes. Absolutely. And I'm guessing they took it out because 
they thought, oh, they're going to think that we're just, we stole this from the end of Halloween, so we can't right. do it. Because the end but of Halloween has it. the static shots. Yes, absolutely. And I, I did miss them. I thought, I, I, for me, I'm like, I would have done it anyway. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, no, I, I had I, the I get, same I get taking thought. it out. Yeah, no, I get taking it out. I, I, I totally, but it did have that moment where you're just going around the different shots. And yeah, I, I absolutely had the same, I came to the same conclusion. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and it's interesting. I I, I want to bring up another film real quick because there, there's a British film that came out in 1971 called Fright, which I actually think handles the concept, like it, it could have served as the model for a feature-length version of When a Stranger Calls. Uh, in Fright, uh, a babysitter is menaced by the ex-husband of the employer. He doesn't call, but he appears outside the window and, and that sort of thing, and eventually... He gets inside and takes the babysitter, uh, her boyfriend who has come over to visit, and the child who is his child hostage. And it's a, I just want to say it's, it's called Fright. It is a terrific, tense little thriller in a similar vein. But I could see that as maybe a way they could have gone to sort of take the, 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 the sitter concept and blow it up to a feature length rather than basically making a remake of the sitter and then the, the crappy sequel that followed, um, which is, which is kind of the, the route that they took. Yeah. And just to, you know, talk one minute. So in Halloween, you have that opening sequence, Michael escapes you with Dr. Loomis, and then you cut away to, you know, Jay, uh, to Lori and her friends. And now you're with them a lot. And you're mm-hmm. also with Loomis. You're going back and forth, right? Right. Loomis knows what's going on. The uh, the teenagers don't. And that's no. where some tension can happen, right? For the audience. Absolutely. In this movie, after that initial 20-minute sequence, again, which is fantastic, watch yeah. it. Um, you're then with Charles Durning, and then you're getting Kurt. You're, you're following Kurt, right? In a way, much more than following Michael. Because uh, oh, also yeah. Kurt's talking and interacting with people, right. but you now cut to people who have nothing to do with with Jill at the beginning of the movie or Mandrakis, and yeah. you're just with them like you're supposed to care, but you're not given as much time with them. They're not established, and then by the time Kurt Duncan is going after Jill at the end, it's just kind of because they ran out of the other people they introduced. They don't really establish right. why Kurt went to Jill. Like he hadn't been played as obsessed with her or the man. No, it was just before it... that point. It's just like, they knew they needed to go back to her at the end. Um, now, granted, I have not seen when a stranger calls back. So this might get, this might get retconned. Yes. There was a, a TV movie sequel made in the nineties. Uh, we did not watch when a stranger calls back. Um, Oh boy, I don't know. I, 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 it was, it was done for Showtime around ninety two, ninety three, and you know, at the time, the Showtime seemed to be into the, uh, you know, the TV movie sequel to the, uh, to the classic, to the, to the, to the horror film, because that was around the same time they did Psycho Four: The Beginning, which was also a Showtime original movie. Um, but you know, it, it, it's interesting to see the pieces that that sort of like they, they clearly, it's not following the Halloween story model. But it's there's elements of Halloween at play here in When a Stranger Calls. Our third movie today also takes inspiration from a well-known urban legend. One of the earliest films to really kind of follow the model of Halloween. This is He Knows You're Alone. On the night before her wedding, 
every girl is alone. Joyce. Nancy. Amy. Tricia. Joan. Debbie. On the night before her wedding, every girl is frightened. And this time, there's good reason. He knows you're alone. I know who the next girl is. Never mind how. I just know who it is. On the night before the wedding, he knows you're alone. And it's going to be for the very last time. Now, He Knows You're Alone begins with a scene of two teenagers making out in a parked car. The girl hears a noise. The guy goes to look outside. He doesn't come back. And finally, the girl, there's a tapping on the, on the outside of the car. The girl out, goes out to investigate. And then her boyfriend is hanging upside down, and she's faced with a killer wielding a sickle. But wait! We pull back, and we're in a movie theater with two girls watching a movie. It's only 1980, Rob, and we're already getting metacinematic commentary on slasher films. One of the women wearing a, a conspicuous wedding ring gets up and goes to the bathroom, and there she has the sense she's being watched. She returns to the theater, and a figure sits down behind her. And as they're watching the movie, and it reaches its climax, she's stabbed through the seat. Her scream covered up by the other screams of the audience. This is the opening to He Knows You're Alone, written by Scott Parker and directed by Armand Mastriani. Um... The opening scene takes inspiration from the urban legend of the hook, which would more famously serve as the basis for um, the book and the movie. I know what you did last summer. Mastriani pitched the idea of a movie based on this urban legend. And when it didn't garner interest, he kind of reconceived of it as the movie within a movie opening. And just as our last movie, when a stranger calls provided the inspiration for the opening of scream with Drew Barrymore, when she is called by the killer, he knows you're alone provided the inspiration for the opening of Scream 2, where, where Jada Pinkett is, is killed in the movie theater. And Rob, when I did we realize this when we paired these films? You bet we didn't. Oh yeah. You uh <laughs> if you if you think we're doing that much pre-research, you are wrong, my friends. Uh, but it's Kismet. Uh so Yeah, it's serendipity. So both of these films, and I had heard this when a stranger calls thing before. Yes. I think I had missed the he knows you're alone thing, but now that's added onto my screamology list of every film you need to watch before you can completely appreciate scream. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did not. One, one serves as the impetus for the opening of scream and the other for scream too. And, and it's just, uh, it's a, uh, it's amazing little bit of serendipity that when we discovered, uh, it just made us incredibly happy that we paired these movies together. Um, he Knows You're Alone stars Caitlin Doheny, Don Scardino, Elizabeth Kemp, Tom Rothling, and Louis Arlt. 
Uh, it also features a few actors in small roles who would go on to much bigger projects, including Paul Gleason, the principal from The Breakfast Club, and Deputy Chief Dwayne T. Robinson from Die Hard, Dana Barron, who was the original Audrey in National Lampoon's Vacation, the prolific character actor James Rebhorn, and an unknown actor by the name of Tom Hanks. Um, who Knows Your Alone follows Amy Jensen, who in the weeks leading up to her wedding is stalked by a killer named Ray Carlton, who preys upon brides-to-be. Ray himself was rejected by his fiancée, who later got engaged to police detective Len Gamble. On their wedding day, Ray murdered his former fiancée and has since been on a killing spree targeting brides-to-be. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's Halloween, but with a wedding theme instead of a Halloween theme. Yeah, and uh, they really missed the boat by not putting wedding in the title somehow. Uh, or or what about uh, Forever Hold Your Peace? How is the poster for this movie not a knife cutting into a wedding cake that's bleeding blood? Like, why is that not the poster for this movie? Jesus, do I have to do all the work here for, for He Knows You're Alone? We should just remake it and re-release it with that, you know. Thankfully, we get some birthday-themed horror movies that give you that that poster, Chris. Yes, but that's they really, true. They could have been first. They could have been first. Oh, yeah. Um, could, absolutely. Um, this movie is actually a great illustration of what John Carpenter brought to Halloween as a director because the movie feels like what Halloween might have been without the creativity of Carpenter and Hill. It, it's not to say it's a bad movie. It, it's very much the epitome of okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's entertaining. I was, sure. I was happy to watch this whole thing. Uh, there are times that it gets a little goofy. Yeah. And I, I, I have to, Chris, uh, my favorite piece Please. of dialogue in this whole film. <laughs> when uh, Len is, uh, who's the one whose, you know, uh, fiance had been murdered and he's obsessed with catching the killer. Yes. Uh, Frank, his other cop. I, I mean, they don't really portray them as partners, but they're clearly buds, at least, yeah. on the force. He has brought him in uh, for one of the crime scenes. Okay. Yes. And Len is, who's kind of a jerk this whole movie, uh, is uh, <laughs> is not having it. And No, he, he, he wants Frank, something to do with it. Yeah, because he finds out that uh, this was at, uh, well, I'm not going to spoil it, but there's a guy, a guy who was murdered in this in yeah. this place. And Len says, I'm not interested in middle-aged guys, Frank. This guy kills brides, young brides. <laughs> All right, Frank, give me the rest of it. And then Frank looks at him very seriously and says, it was at a bridal shop. <laughs> and then Len's, and then Len's like, "Oh, I'm on board, baby. It's got to be him." And he's like, "Off to the races." Um, well, let's start with the fact that after that initial movie theater killing, we get the the shot from from Police Squad and the Naked Gun with the 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 camera on top of the police car between the lights. Which, of course, this predates both of those things. But it's like we we're following it. All I could think of was the Naked Gun. All you know, as yeah. Len drives up to the movie theater to inspect the car. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted the lights to go into the movie theater. <laughs> like you're just following them as the credits roll. Um, yeah. All, well, Detective Len Gamble is our Loomis figure, and you know it's it, it, 
basically, what if Loomis was a big jerk? <laughs> um, we also like but with Halloween. great fashion sense, but with great oh, fashion fantastic! Sense. No, no, I want to, <laughs> I want to go as, as Detective Gamble for Halloween. That's a really deep cut, but that jacket, man. Uh, <laughs> I had a jacket like that once, Chris. It fell apart. Uh, this is that is what you could get thrift shopping in the nineties. <laughs> Also like Halloween, our main character, Amy, has two friends that both end up getting killed, along with the guy, one of them with the guy she's sleeping with. What happens is we soon get a flashback uh, after the the sequence introducing Len. We get a flashback to the murder of Gamble's fiance. But what I thought was interesting is it wasn't Gamble's flashback. It was the killers. We see him like on a bus driving out and, and we get a POV shot of the killer approaching the bride to be much like Michael approaching his sister in the opening Halloween. And, you know, and, and, and then there's that initial killing. And um, yeah, uh, I want to mention this movie was entirely shot on location in Staten Island in late 1979, which is going to make it even more weird because for those who don't know, Staten Island's a weird place. It's this no man's land between it's not quite New York. It's not quite New Jersey. I don't know what the hell it is, uh, except they, they, the, the people who live there drive to New Jersey malls because there's no sales tax on clothing. Um, you know, anyway, we, other shots borrowed from Halloween include the girl walking away from the camera and then her stalker moving into the right-hand side of the frame. And we get that not once, but twice. Uh, we also get a shot of Amy seeing Ray standing outside the window of the house, which is very reminiscent of Lori seeing Michael in her backyard. But in, when Amy when Amy looks outside, and it's, instead of the haunting image of the shape, it's a dude in a peacoat. Um, and that's <laughs> part of what makes this movie kind of not work, is that the killer is not terribly threatening. Yeah, it's uh, as I I was texting you while watching this, Chris, and I kept imagining (laughs) the version of this movie where Fred Armisen played the killer because he kind of acts like Fred Armisen pretending to be a killer in something like a comedy (laughs) sketch at times. Yes, they're they're, uh, toward the end when he is trying to do like get into the car. It's it, it really is a little comical. Uh, and then I thought Len Len could be played by Bill Hader. It seemed like absolutely, they, absolutely. Um, so this this colored my my reading of the film. But again, it was enjoyable. I don't know how Carpenter didn't sue them over the score, honestly. Because uh, it's like, what if you just did a, a Halloween knockoff on a piano? You didn't have a synthesizer. You just used a piano. I mean, it is it is pretty hardcore. Maybe I'm going to say this right here. Uh, I'll cut this earlier if if I didn't find it, but we're going to A-B these, these scores for you right now. Um, yeah man so that that's pretty similar but like both halloween and a stranger calls uh there's no mystery surrounding the killer's identity uh and that i I just thought was was also interesting they just you know they know who the killer is from early on it's a question of tracking him down that's going to change with some of the movies that will come in the following weeks where the identity of the killer is very much at at sort of the center of uh you know of of the film uh, but like like when a stranger calls, they set up kind of a a killer motive and then completely ignore it when it's convenient. So yes. this guy, 
went crazy because uh, his ex-girlfriend was going to marry a guy. He killed her. And now he just kills anyone who's going to get married, right? Right. Except when there's a philandering professor and a college student who he's sleeping with, having an affair with, uh, who have absolutely no plans to get get married at all, have never talked about it. But the bridal killer decides to get them uh, for whatever reason that is never explained. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, I want to mention the character of Marvin, who is the old flame of Amy's, uh, but not her current fiancé. Her current fiancé is set up from the beginning to be kind of an Um, a-hole. But Marvin still carries a torch for her, and he works as a medical examiner in the Staten Island morgue. But what I love is that that job of medical exam was so new that you couldn't reference it without also referencing Jack Klugman and the show Quincy M.E. to explain what you do. Oh, yeah, like Jack Klugman on Quincy M.E. Like, like people don't know what a medical exam... Well, in 1979, I guess it was a new thing. And, yeah. uh, and a pro tip, Rob, if you're shopping for a wedding dress, don't go to a bridal salon where the owner smokes giant cigars around the dresses. Yeah, and uh, and stay away from bridal killers. Uh, it's uh, just in <laughs> general, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the thing um, that I love, the morgue becomes one of the big uh, big sets toward the end of yes. this thing, and it's been established. Hey, look, we all we've all seen a lot of morgues in both uh, crime films and TV as well as horror, and they establish that. You know, the morgue parts downstairs where it's easier to keep uh, coolness and all of that, right? Yes. But you, you saw, like, a hallway in one room for most of the movie. Because you're not there a lot. No, By the end of this thing, when you're going to have a cat and mouse chase, this morgue is like Dr. No's underground bunker. <laughs> I mean, I like, it has morphed into, like, it must be oh a my football God. field size underground here, Chris, the way that they run with that. Well, the uh, well, we'll come we'll come back to this second because yes, the more <laughs> is 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 completely. We have a, a few more things to get to through before. Um, first of all, I think this movie benefit. This movie illustrates the benefit of putting your killer in a mask because there's a scene where Ray attacks someone and it's just the goofiest expressions on his face ever. And you know, a mask can help with that. <laughs> Um, and there's some weird editing with the timeline of this movie. Like Len learns that the bridal shop owner is murdered with, with your favorite line. And then, uh, he, you know, the sh- this is the shop where Amy's getting her dress and he doesn't get there till the next day. Like, and, and, but when he gets there, the body is still on the floor. Like they would just leave the body on the floor for a full 24 hours and are still investigating around. And later he has car trouble to prevent him from reaching Amy sooner than the movie needs. Um, yeah. Well, that to me is just all folds into how he is the shittiest detective. <laughs> oh, he's he's the most ineffective cop in the greater New York area. Absolutely. Yeah, he is. He's very bad at his job. Extremely bad at his job. Um, at least Loomis is a doctor for crying out loud, right? Yeah, and he's uh, watching the house most of the movie, but yeah. you know, he thinks that Michael's gonna come back. That's the best chance that that Michael, you know, to, to get because you know, unless you just stumble, which he kind of does. Um, as we mentioned earlier, Tom Hanks has a brief role in this movie as the guy, a guy that one of Amy's friends is interested in, and he appears in two scenes. And he shows up to give a, a speech about fear and horror movies and scary rides and our need for fear. 
what's amazing is it feels like a cameo, but it isn't. Like, Tom Hanks was not a known actor at this point. He was just another unknown actor looking for a job, but the way he appears gives this sort of meta-cinematic speech about fear, and then disappears feels like a cameo. Like, it feels like it's designed as a cameo, but it's just Tom Hanks in a, as, as in a small role early in his career. Yeah, I mean, I was I was really thought that, oh, wait, are they doing a two killer thing? Because he's so over the top and kind of creepy with like talking about fear as he's getting really into it. Right. Uh, and, and it's designed to make you think, wait, or maybe it's not designed this way, but it just feels like like a giant red herring, even though we know we've seen the other guy doing the murders. I was like, yeah, has, has Tom Hanks hypnotized the bridal killer into doing his bidding? <laughs> Is that how they're connected? Um, it, it's, it's pretty nuts. Um, oh, but um, I, I wanted before to backtrack to that opening. Oh yes. Because I, uh, I brought it up earlier and now granted, I will say this is supposed to be a bad movie within the movie, right? Right. But when that woman is in the car and her boyfriend has gone outside and then she hears the knocking, yeah. uh, they're pretending like, oh, there's no way she could see out of these giant 1970s sedan windows. Uh, look, there's a little bit of yes. fog on the inside from breath, and they she's trying to wipe it away but can't. And I'm like, why? Her her boyfriend is hanging from a tree, literally like a foot away, uh, it, and, and it's very well lit. Um, yeah. you know, for a, for a night scene, I just and anyway, uh, in stark contrast to uh, the Halloween uh, dark and night scenes where you really are kind of like, ooh, what's out there? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um... Uh, like Halloween, He Knows You're Alone is more focused on suspense than gore or elaborate killings. But there is a scene where Amy comes back to find her friend's head in a fish tank. And I, I kind of thought, like, in, in a sort of, again, metatextual way, it, it's an early indication of the direction these types of films are going to go, you know, in, in terms of you know, the more elaborate kills and show in this case, we don't see the kill, but we see the aftermath of it. Uh, and it's, it's, um, oddly, I, I point, I thought Amy doesn't scream when she sees the head in a fish tank. If I came home and, and saw, you know, a head in a fish tank, even regardless of who it was, I'd scream my head off. Um, and that's, you know, that precipitates the final act of this movie. That's where we start the, the big chase. But the, the head in the aquarium, in order to get, first of all, yet another victim who's not a bride to be, uh, and you know, the killer did not need. It's not like oh, they were preventing him from getting to Amy. No, it's yeah, just, or it's, he yeah. could have walked away. Could have walked away. But uh, I swear to God, Chris, it is like it felt like a, a 10, 15 minute sequence of the friend smoking a dude. Like oh, I'm gonna put on some music. Oh, wait, I want to listen with my headphones, but let me roll this joint. Now let me sit back and smoke this joint. It was like, it was a half hour of this but before like, the killer But before comes. that, they, they tease a, a psycho shower scene kind of thing where she goes in, she gets in the shower, she takes off her clothes, she uh, the water comes down, they even have a shot of the drain like in Psycho. And I'm thinking, oh, well, this is, they're going to do a kind of meta cinematic psycho thing. And then she ends up just taking a shower and getting out and then smoking a doobie later. And that's when, when Ray shows up. Uh, and, uh, just to call out the nudity, because this movie doesn't have much, uh, like Halloween doesn't no. have much. When a stranger calls, has none, I believe. None. Really. 
Uh, but I will say that much like Halloween's nudity, it seems to be more of the naturalistic variety, right? Now, look, I'm sure they're doing it on purpose to sell some tickets, but, and I'm not going to say that it's zero male gaze, but it is not lingering. It's uh, the, the naked parts are not the focus of the shot. It, they're not like, you know, dead center framed. Uh, so this isn't like Friday five, right? No, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, it takes a while to work in. Uh, and it just, since we're here at the beginning, I want to mention it because when you look at the genesis of these films, it's not that there's zero nudity, but it is very brief and it is, it, it feels much more naturalistic. Like, yeah, when you shower, you're going to be naked and look up, uh, you know, you see a little something, but you know, it's, it's not lingered on. It's not the point. The point is the vulnerability in the, in the shower. That is going to change pretty quick. <laughs> Yes, my friend. Is. Yeah, that is going to change pretty. So after after the the fish tank incident, uh, we get into the final sequence of the film where Ray is chasing Amy at first in a car and then she crashes the car uh, and then on foot. And I gotta say, they made Staten Island really look like this weird, empty, nightmarish hellscape. Like it's just. And as someone from New Jersey, I have to say, it's accurate. We're losing all of our Staten Island listeners right now, Chris. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I'm looking. The board sent me some. We're losing all of our Staten Island <laughs> listener right now, Chris. <laughs> uh, she winds up in the morgue where her Mar- her friend Marvin works, and as you pointed out earlier, there's apparently miles and miles of tunnels beneath the Staten Island morgue. I would dismiss this as strange, except for the fact that Staten Island's really weird, so I don't find it implausible at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, I, there's a reason what we do in the shadows is at Staten Island, I think. <laughs> uh, and then finally, Len shows up, just like Dr. Loomis or Charles Durning, uh, except I, I will give them points for a twist, is that he doesn't doesn't successfully stop the killer. The killer, in fact, kills Len. Yeah, and this is another just point in how terrible Len is at his job, right? <laughs> Not a bad shot. So he does take, he does uh, shoot the, yeah, the killer. he wings him. Uh, but then decide, he actually goes up to him, the body, and is going to shoot again, and then kind of shrugs it off like, eh. <laughs> like, I don't know if that was going to be a, a second form if he used another bullet or what. Uh, and then he's like, I know what I should do, having shot once. I should turn my back on this guy completely and uh, never look behind me. As I am dealing with uh, this hysterical woman in front of me, and yeah. lo and behold, he gets stabbed in the heart, which is the yeah. second time the killer has stabbed Len in the heart. Yeah. <laughs> he died like he lived. Like As an, an asshole. asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ray is beaten and captured. Um, and then the final scene shows Amy getting married, but she's now getting married to Marvin instead of her previous fiancé, Phil, who was shown earlier cheating on Amy during his bachelor party weekend. But the final line, we get another POV shot approaching Amy as she's she's getting ready to, you know, for her wedding day. The final line, Phil, what are you doing here? Indicates that he now be it might be the next bride-to-be killer. <sighs> You know, it's it, and again, I think it, it's a great illustration of how of what Carpenter brought 
to Halloween to elevate that movie. Carpenter and Hill and that whole team brought to elevate that movie because here's a movie that kind of follows the same model and is just not done in in you know in the in the way at all. Uh, you know, it, it does it. It's not a bad movie, and we've seen a lot worse, and we will see a lot worse. But but it's just kind of there. Uh, and, and look, I when I I will fully admit something here. The horror the horror genre is my absolute favorite genre. Okay, sure. So you know, there's the old Sturgeon's law: ninety percent of everything is crap. Right. Um, which you know, whether it's exactly true, it's kind of true. It's in the ballpark. There are plenty of genres that I gravitate toward less, like say romantic comedies. Right. Sure. Now, if you're when Harry met Sally, I love you. You're yeah. fantastic. No question. You know, but if you're not at those high heights, I, I'm probably have less patience and I might turn you off. Right. This is to set up. Uh, I will sit through almost any horror movie, even ones that <laughs> I, that are objectively not, not maybe up to snuff of say Halloween. So, just know that when I say I recommend all three of these movies, like I would watch them all. I think if you like yes, horror movies, uh, as do I, check them all out. Um, you know, look, I can I can poke fun here and there at some of the things, but um, they're all really enjoyable, and I like I yeah. never was bored ever in any no. of these. Um, so anyway. and and it's just it's it's especially interesting to see those those early uh you know kind of movies that followed from Halloween and and you you what what pieces they're taking from Halloween and 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 where they're taking those pieces. Which I think brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the discussion of Halloween and some of these early films that followed. Please join us next week as we discuss a film that has a massive influence on the slasher genre in its own right. Friday the 13th. We'll be talking about that movie and its impact, as well as another holiday-themed film, New Year's Evil, on our next episode. So don't miss it. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> we are your hosts, Chris Iannico and Rob Laborges. If you've enjoyed listening to the show, please consider subscribing, following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod, and join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another.